please turn in your Bible over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God, the gift, and us. God, the gift, and us. We've been studying verse by verse through the Thessalonian epistles. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the prophetic picture that is coming. We know that the rapture of the church is what's next on God's agenda. And then we know after the church is taken out of the world, the, the world is going to be plunged into seven years of, of tribulation. Jesus said it'll be worse than any time that the world has ever known. And it'll be worse than any time that the world will ever know in the future. But he will come at the end of that seven-year period from heaven. We as church-age believers are going to be coming with him. And um, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. He's going to defeat the armies of the world. And then he's going to set up his kingdom here on earth. And so people sometimes wonder, well, what does the future hold? I'm afraid, you know, are we going to die from global warming? Or is this thing going to happen? Or is that thing going to happen? No, you're not going to die from global warming. You can forget about that, okay? We do have more than 10 or 20 years left on the planet. Anybody who comes up with those kind of statements shows that they're an unbeliever, okay? Or that they're, if they're a believer, they've been incredibly deceived into thinking ridiculous things. If you want to know what the future holds, read the Bible. Okay, God's never been wrong and he's the one who controls it and has been said many times that prophecy is the mold of history. Prophecy is the mold of history. Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, but we are bound, now remember the but here is after talking about the tribulation period, the worldwide deception that's going to go on under the government of the Antichrist and the problems with those who receive the mark and all the things we've covered last week. Paul is writing to believers here. And he says in verse 13, but we, but we, believers, okay? But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved, of the Lord. Notice their brethren beloved, Paul and his team are writing to these church age believers. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whatever you believe, friends, has to fit the whole of Scripture. We need to understand that, okay? One of the first things you learn when you go to Bible college, when it comes to hermeneutics and, and the interpretation of Scripture, it is this. You never interpret clear passages by unclear ones, okay? Rather, you interpret unclear passages by clear ones, as an example, we know that salvation is a gift. More about that in a few minutes, okay? Salvation is a gift. That being true, salvation being a gift, we also know, according to Scripture, that if it's a gift, then it can't be something that you earn. That's based on your works. Why? Well, because it's a, it's a gift. So when you come over passages that maybe on the surface may seem to say, oh, we have to earn our way to heaven, what you do is you fall back on the clear passages that say salvation's a gift and then go to the context of that passage, study it out, and you will find that it isn't teaching works for salvation. It is teaching most likely 
something having to do with either reward for the believer or something like that. That's how you do that, okay? Now, when it comes to this issue that we're looking at today, here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 and verse 14, this has caused a lot of unnecessary confusion to many people. Now, the Calvinists love to quote this passage, I believe out of context, They say that God picks certain people to be saved, and in fact, they are the only ones who can be saved. Let me say that again. The Calvinists believe that God picks people out of history to be saved, go to heaven, and in fact, they're the only ones who can be saved. Now keep that in mind, and that is a fair assessment of that belief. But let's break this down, okay? The first thing we're going to be looking at today is God's gift to us. We see that in verse 13 and 14. The gift of salvation from God, that's what it's referring to. God's gift to us is eternal life, okay? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is a gift, There's no such thing as a gift that you have to do something for. Now, God's gift to us, okay? While most Calvinists do not want to admit it, if what they believe is true, they believe in something that's called double predestination. Double predestination. Now, what is that? In other words, if God chooses certain people to be saved, he locks the rest into suffering forever in hell with no chance of anything else. That would be double predestination. Here's what they say. God looks at the human race and for no reason except his own choice in eternity past, he says, okay, everybody deserves to go to hell, but I'm going to choose certain ones to go to heaven. All right. Now, friends, there's two destinies. When you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. All right. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. See, we even have more justice and reasoning than Calvinism teaches. If I was to say to you, okay, everybody's lost, everybody's guilty, everybody's condemned, but I'm going to only choose certain ones to go to heaven, your immediate reaction would be this. Well, what about the others? What about the others? See, that's your justice kicking in as a human being. By the way, who wired you that way? God did. What about the others? Now, the Calvinists would say, well, we ought to be thankful for the few that he did pick. No, no, no. What about the others? See, here's the truth. If they can't be saved because God says no, and if that's the majority of mankind, then God in eternity past has predetermined that they would be lost forever in hell. Here's the truth of it. It would be better that they had never been conceived. It would be better. When Calvinists are questioned about this, they pull a card out of their pocket, (laughs) not literally, but figuratively, and they hold it up and it says this, mystery, mystery. In other words, we don't understand it, but we accept it because that's what the Bible teaches. I beg to differ with you. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe John 3, 16, amen? Amen. For God so loved the world. Who's that, everybody? That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, of what? Of the world, believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. 
I got a call this week. We have a friend who lives in Oklahoma. I've never met him face to face, but we've talked a few times and, and chatted loves, loves, loves our ministry. In the area where he and his wife live, there's no churches that have the gospel. Not one. Not one. They love our ministry here, and he listens all the time as he's driving. He, uh, he works for the gas company down there, so he has a lot of time in a vehicle going from one place to another. And he actually called this week. He's only called maybe once or twice. He called this week the other day, and we chatted for a while and had such a wonderful, wonderful talk I won't name him by name. Maybe he's watching today. But he said, I got some questions about Calvinism and Arminianism and and stuff like that. And so we had a wonderful conversation. Now, I'm going to say something that might make some people mad, hopefully no one here today. But I said this, well, you know, when you think about it, there's really not a whole lot of difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. Boy, the Arminians hate that. And the Calvinists hate that. But it's the truth. See, Arminians teach this. You have to do good works to keep your salvation. That's works for salvation. The Calvinists say this, you have to do good works to prove your salvation. Both of them are looking to their performance as the grounds for their eternal security. Both of those positions are wrong. Salvation is a free gift. It is a free gift. Now, look at those verses again. But we are bound to give thanks always for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hold your place here and go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You might say, well, how do you resolve this stuff, okay? I believe there's many ways that factors, but I think there is one that is gigantic. And if you remember this, I think the rest can easily fall into place. First Peter chapter one, it says in verse two, it says this, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Here's the key, folks. Always remember, according to the Bible, that election is according to foreknowledge. This is key, all right? Now, the word foreknowledge, as I was discussing with my friend the other day, the word foreknowledge, this is one of those words that has been hijacked by false teachers, and they love making foreknowledge something more than it means. If I was to talk to anybody, not even a Christian, if I was to talk to anybody who studies vocabulary, who studies the the origin of words and so forth, if I was to say to them, what does the word foreknowledge mean? They would probably say, well, that's easy. Just break it down. It's two words. For means before, and knowledge means to know. And so what does that mean? Well, it means to know something beforehand. Now, how many of you would agree with that? that? That's foreknowledge, okay? To know something beforehand. Calvinists say this. No, it's more than that. No, it's not more than that. See, the word means exactly that. Now, election is according to foreknowledge. Here's how this comes together, folks. And I'll be repeating myself a little bit as we go through, but let me just give you this concept. God knows beforehand 
Who will trust Christ as Savior? And he has foreordained or determined or chosen or elected. Any of those things go together. He has decided that those who will trust Christ as Savior, he has predetermined that they will receive certain benefits. He knows beforehand who will, and he has decided whosoever will. And he knows who they are. They're going to get certain benefits. That is what the Bible says in 1 Peter 1-2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So foreknowledge comes before election. God knows and he has determined. Okay? It isn't God has determined and therefore he knows. If he has determined and therefore, in other words, as a result of him determining, listen carefully, if he has determined and because of that he knows, then that is saying that there was a time when he didn't know. Are you following me? Foreknowledge is not a result of election. Election is a result of foreknowledge. I hope you get this. I hope you're listening today. I hope you came in awake today to where we can understand this, because this is important. God knows who will believe and has determined that those who believe will have everlasting life, they will have a home in heaven, and they will receive many other benefits. But he does not lock you into believing through election. It is up to you whether you're going to believe in Christ or not. God in his sovereignty, that means he could do anything he wanted within his character, God in his sovereignty chose to give man a free will. That was God's choice. So where you end up when you die is up to you, whether you will put your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior, as your payment for sin, or whether you're gonna trust in yourself. God has not anywhere in the Bible said, okay, here's all these people And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a fraction of all those guilty, lost, condemned sinners, and I'm going to save some of them. What about the rest? No, don't ask that question. You ought to be happy for the ones I took. Yeah, but what about the 90% plus that you didn't take? Okay? No, friends, the offer's open to all of them of all time. Anybody can be saved. This passage, by the way, becomes very clear. And as as always, we see in Scripture that God has ordained believers to receive benefits and blessings. Now, this passage becomes very clear if you follow the path here in verses 13 and 14 backwards. Now, I know there are people who may see this and may say, what do you mean? You interpret the Bible backwards? Where do you get that? That's nowhere in Scripture. Well, I beg to differ for you. This is a means of argument and explanation that Paul has used other places in his writing. And so I want you to see it. Look with me to Romans chapter 10. We see the same concept as we see in verses 13 and 14 in the way of backwards progression by Paul. Romans 10 verse 14. Look what it says. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Are you seeing it? And how shall they preach except they be sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, or Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You can't call on the Lord if you haven't believed in him. And you can't believe if you haven't heard. And you can't hear without somebody preaching. And you can't, and no one's going to be preaching unless they're sent. Do you see it? So they're sent, right? And then they preach, and then the people hear, and then they believe, and then they can call. There it is. It's a backward progression. I believe that's exactly what you see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go back there. Let's go back there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What are you saying? He calls us by the gospel, verse 14. We believe the truth. We're sanctified by the spirit. Okay, there it is. It's a backward progression. Now, so let's look at this in verse 14. And this is all under the point God's gift to us. First thing I want us to understand is this. We must hear the gospel, verse 14. This is how the Lord calls people to himself. Do you see that there in verse 14? Whereunto he called you by our gospel. No one gets saved unless they hear the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ the Savior. No one gets saved. But that is how they get saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we must hear the gospel first. Secondly, we must believe the gospel. Verse 13, belief in the truth. You can know it and not believe it, okay? And that's true with some people. Some people know the gospel, but they don't believe the gospel. Yeah, but at least they have the information. By the way, if you're ever sharing the gospel with somebody and somebody says, you know, I really don't want to hear it. I really don't want to hear it. Something you can say to them sometimes is this. is to say, well, let me ask you this. Have you always thought the way you do? Usually they'll say, well, no, not always. Okay, so there was a time when you didn't think the way you're thinking now, right? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be good to know if one day you were to change your mind, wouldn't it be good to know what the Bible says about this? Well, okay. Can I just have a few minutes of your time and explain this to you? See, it's a way of handling that objective. We must believe the gospel. Romans 1.16 says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But it doesn't stop there. It says, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. That is true. It's always true. But it's only good on behalf of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. There's lots of people who've heard the gospel over and over and over again. We present it in every service here in our church. And yet there may be people who have never put their faith in Christ. They know it but they don't believe it. Not a good place to be. So we must hear the gospel, verse 14. We must believe the gospel, verse 13. Third, when we do, we are set apart and made pure by the Holy Spirit, verse 13. The sanctification of the Spirit, you notice, is linked to believing the gospel. Fourth, God has determined and chosen that those who believe would have salvation and all the blessings that come with it, verse 13. But let me, let me draw your attention to this, okay, in this passage, folks. Very, very important here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
in verse 13. And it is this. If you look carefully, you will see verse 13 can in fact be translated or interpreted, not translated, interpreted two different ways. This can certainly mean eternal salvation, and that's how we have talked about it to this point. But it can also mean salvation or deliverance from the tribulation period and the judgments that are going to come from that. This fits perfectly with the context, because what has he been talking about to this point? He's been talking about the day of the Lord. He's been talking about the revealing of the Antichrist, talking about him claiming to be God and going into the future temple to be worshiped as God, talking about receiving the mark of the beast or siding, believing in, in the Antichrist to the uh, damnation of a person's soul, so to speak. And then what does he do? He's talking about the plight of the lost, verses 1 through 12, and then verse 13, he begins with verse 13 but say, with this word, but we. See that? There's a shift. There's a pivot there. But we. I think this fits perfectly with 1 Thessalonians 5, where it speaks of the day of the Lord and how believers would be delivered from it. Do you remember when we studied that passage? Go with me back just a couple pages. First, Thessalonians 5 in verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5. We know 1 Thessalonians 5 dealing with the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night right after the rapture of the church. Okay? Beautifully set up. And then we see between verses 5 and verse 8 or 9 or verse 8 Paul saying this is the way it will be for the people on earth but you who are believers it's this way for you. The people on earth are going to go through this. You as believers, though, are, we know this to be true for you. In other words, there's a contrast, there's a contrast, there's a contrast. Then you get to verse 9, and it says this. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. I think verses 9 and 10 have that double meaning. The immediate context of verses 9 and 10 there, are, though, are having to do with that deliverance, I think, from the day of the Lord, from the tribulation period. Now, does that apply certainly to eternal salvation? It certainly applies to eternal salvation, because we know that to be true, and that's brought out in verse 10. Now, back in 2 Thessalonians 2, their condition and situation as believers was in contrast to those who were lost in verses 1 through 12, those who would follow the Antichrist. But we who are believers, we're going to be taken out of the world before that takes place. Okay? So I think that verses 13 and 14, I think that can have a, a double meaning. Okay, and it can go either way. Both of them, by the way, would be true to the word of God, not contradictory to it. Okay, so let's go on. Verses 15 through 17. We've seen God's gift to us. And now verses 15 through 17, we see our response to him once we've trusted Christ as Savior. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren. What does that mean? Therefore, meaning based on what we've just covered. Therefore, okay, in response, the logical response to what we've just covered. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our 
epistle. Therefore, the fact that we have salvation and that we will not experience God's wrath should affect our thinking in several ways. This is God's way. God always provides salvation. Then he appeals to us to respond with the way we live. It's not a demand. It's an appeal. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in view of the mercy God have and save us, that you would present your body a living sacrifice. This is God's way. Now, it should affect our thinking in several ways. First, you notice in verse 15, we should stand fast. What does that mean? It means persevere. Persevere. They were being persecuted. This church was under real persecution. They were being persecuted for their faith. What's he saying? Don't get overwhelmed and quit. Friends, the most persecuted group in the world right now, did you know this? Are Christians. Christians. And that's not going to get less. It's only going to get worse. Until Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation to set up his kingdom. And then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the meantime... We're not there yet. No, don't get overwhelmed and quit. The future is bright for the Christian. We are not in heaven yet. The best is yet to come. See, we get discouraged because we get our eyes off the big picture. We don't think in terms of eternity. We don't think about, yeah, you know, I'm, we think about, oh, I'm going through this right now. I'm going through this hardship, this difficulty, this trial. And folks, those are real. We're human and they can bog us down. But that's not the mind of Scripture. The Bible says, keep the big picture in view. Our sufferings are just for a moment. We're going to spend forever with the Lord. Therefore, don't quit. The best is yet to come. Let us never forget that. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, life can be messy. can be messy. Between our own shortcomings and between the shortcomings of others and then Satan being the God of this world, little g, it's a mess. But there's a better day coming for those of us who are the children of God. So we need to stand fast. That means persevere. Stand fast doesn't mean, okay? That's not the idea. Secondly, we should hold or retain the traditions which we have been taught. We see that in verse 15. Now the word tradition, okay? We're not talking about, you know, by the way, a lot of Baptists, they love that, okay? No, it's not talking about We've done it this way ever since, and we're going to keep doing it this way forever, you know? Wait a minute. It's the tradition is, that's my seat. I've been coming here for 20 years, and why are you sitting there? <laughs> you know, we've had people not come back to our church because we don't do an altar call. Oh, man. Oh, you wouldn't believe some of the things I've heard over the years. Well, I'm not coming back. Why don't you go? You don't do an altar call in your church. Now, let me say, okay, let's address that. Number one, an altar call is nowhere in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong, so hear me out. It's nowhere in the Bible. So to demand that is a problem. 
because it's not in the Bible. Secondly, I'm not against altar calls. I think there's a time that they're appropriate, so I'm not against it. And third, it's not our custom in our church to do it. Every church has a customer culture, every single church. Doesn't matter what the name of it is, there's a culture or a custom in that church. And that culture or custom many times is simply made up by the way the people are and what they're used to and their expectations. Nothing wrong with that, okay? If I wasn't part of this church, my wife and I were in another church, that church would be different than this one. It would just be different. I say, well, that's, is that bad? Not necessarily. It's only bad if it's contrary to scripture. I'm good with that. I hope you're good with that. Don't be so set in your ways that you create a rut for yourself. Now that's not, I said all that. That's not what the word tradition is about. It, the word tradition means a transmission or a teaching. Something that's been handed down, either verbally handed down through people talking to each other or something that has been literally taught from the scriptures. Okay, this is not referring to man-made traditions, but truth that has been handed down over time. By word, something handed down through communication, or it could be by the apostles' teaching. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, it says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. I love that. Comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. Third, we should find comfort in our eternal security. Amen. Comfort in our eternal security. Verse 16. Okay? We have good hope through grace. It is because of grace that we have comfort in our eternal security. If you have to prove you're saved or earn your salvation or anything like it, friends, you don't have comfort. You've got agony. See, this is one of the damnable results of, and I don't use that word lightly, but it's, it's true when used in context. It's one of the damnable results of lordship salvation. Well, you not only have to believe in Christ, but you also have to do these things, this thing and that. Well, what, how, how much of that do you have to do? Well, you just got to be faithful. How do you qualify faithful? What does that mean? It goes on and on and on, and it's just a black hole. It goes on and on and on. You never know whether you've been faithful enough. You never know whether you're plugged in. By the way, this is what Calvinism teaches also. They call it the perseverance of the saints. Even John MacArthur, who I usually disagree with on a lot of things, he says perseverance of the saints is lordship salvation. Or he says actually lordship salvation is perseverance of the saints. See, Baptists who hold to this idea that, well, if you're saved, you're going to live a godly life automatically, they don't understand they're teaching Calvinism, even though they would disagree with it. Why? Because they're saying once you save, you are automatically going to do the right thing. Friend, that is overriding the will of the person. God has made us free moral agents. Free meaning that we can make choices, not saying that the result of our choices results in freedom. We should find comfort in our eternal security. We have good hope through grace. If we are saved by grace, then we can never lose our salvation because it's based on grace, not on our faithfulness. Grace is undeserved. Grace is unmerited. If it is a gift, then it can only be received and not earned. Hold your place here. Go with me. You've got to see these verses over in Ephesians. You know what? 
your eternal destiny. You might say, what do I have to do with my eternal destiny? Whether you will put your faith in Jesus Christ that he paid for all your sins and that he rose from the grave. That's all there is. You're putting your trust in him for eternity. You're trusting him with your eternity. You're trusting in him that he is the way to heaven. And when you do, he does the saving and he does the keeping. All your sins are forgiven. They're all washed away. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You have everlasting life. Jesus said you will not come into condemnation, but you have passed from death unto life. You are completely secure for all eternity, no matter what, once you trust Christ the Savior. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to take comfort in. Because if you're honest, you know that we all have good days and bad days. Yet it says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace are ye saved. I love that. For by grace... God's unmerited favor are you saved through faith in Christ. And that not of yourselves. You're not saved of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, just to clarify, not of works, lest any man should boast. You will not go to heaven if you're trusting in your works to get you there. It's all in what Christ has done for us. See, God is the one who has designed the future for you and me. He has, listen, he has chosen us. Knowing in eternity past who would trust Christ the Savior, he predetermined, he he decided that those who would believe in Christ the Savior would be the beneficiaries of so many things, beginning with everlasting life. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning of all that he has planned for us. It's all a gift of his grace. He's in control. He's the one who has designed the future for you and me. It is a matter of fact that the God of grace is also the only one who can give everlasting comfort. Why? Because he's everlasting. If he wasn't eternal, how could he give eternal comfort? He could promise it, but he couldn't deliver. No, God delivers what he promises. Our everlasting comfort, which is a matter of our eternal standing in Christ, is the basis of the comfort that the Lord has for us each and every day. Friend, maybe you've had a very difficult week. Maybe you've had tremendous trials this week. Keep focused on the big picture. This is temporary. Rest in the fact. You know what? You may be going through a fire, quote unquote, right now, but you will never suffer eternal fire if you're a believer. Boy, that's something to get excited about. And I can lean on the Lord and I can rest in him because I'm a child of his grace. I'm a child of the king. Lastly, we should allow the Lord to establish us in every good work, verse 17. This is the issue, by the way, of sanctification. Do you see it? Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. It is not stopping at being comforted by God, but moving on to reach others with his truth. As we grow as believers in Christ, as we develop as children of God, we will become more 
Christ-like if we allow him to have his way in our lives. This changes our thoughts, which should lead us to a change in our actions. It should. There's no question about that, and there's no apology for that. It is growing and being used by God as a child of God. This is the will for every Christian. Turn with me over to Titus chapter 2. It says in Titus chapter 2 in verse 11, look at the plan God has here. Titus chapter 2 in verse 11. It says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many? All men. There you go. Consistent with scripture. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Okay? Now, once you've trusted Christ the Savior, what does grace do? Grace, grace not only brings salvation, but it also teaches us once we're saved. What does grace teach us? Verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness, things that are not godly, contrary to the nature of God, that denying ungodliness, we should live in worldly lusts, worldly desires, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, this word peculiar means unique, a people of his own, okay? It doesn't mean you're a weirdo. I know the world sees this as they're kind of peculiar, but God sees this as special. Purify unto himself a peculiar people. Look at the next phrase, zealous of good works. You might say, wait a minute. I thought we're not saved by good works. We're not. We're not saved by good works. We're saved unto good works. There's a big difference between the two. You don't do good works to get to heaven. Once we've trusted Christ the Savior, God has a whole plan for our lives of things he wants us to do to reach others for Christ. Let me ask you a question if you're saved. Don't you care about anybody else? If we're saved, shouldn't we have a concern for the destiny of other people? Yes, does God want us to have comfort in the fact we're eternally saved? Yes, he does. But you know what? He wants everybody to have that. That's where we come in, by living faithful lives for Christ. Now, let me say this morning, Maybe you came in here with uh, unusual ideas about being chosen and elected and predestined. Listen, friend, you can be a child of God that is open to anyone, but you have to believe something. Let me explain to you what Christ has done for you. If, If this hand were to represent you and me, this represents our sin. Here we are. Every one of us is a sinner, including me. Yet God loves us. He hates our sin, but he loves us. See, sin is contrary to the nature of God. To get to heaven, you have to be sinless. Heaven's perfect place. No sin. No sin. Yet we're sinners. Yet God loves us. God says because we've sinned, we must have a payment for sin. A penalty goes with that, okay? We've earned the wages of sin is death. We've earned death, separation from God for all eternity in hell, according to the Bible. Yet heaven's a perfect place. Well, I'm not perfect. Therefore, no matter what I do as far as good deeds, that won't take away the sin. The Bible says the only payment for sin is death, not good works. So then what am I going to do? If my good works can't take away my sin, and if I'm a sinner and I can't get to heaven with it, and God says I have to have a payment for it, and yet I'm a sinner, how do I get rid of it? This hand representing Jesus Christ. 
God himself. He came into the world because he loves you and me. He went to the cross, and when Jesus went to the cross, all the sin of our whole lifetime, he took it upon himself, and he made the payment. Once and for all, he made the payment. He died, was buried, and he rose from the grave. And he says, if we will put our faith in him as our Savior, he will give us everlasting life. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you do that today? Would you do that today? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.